0: I'm Ben Horton, and still with you in 2022, this is Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to another season of Undercurrents, the Chatham House podcast. I'm Ben Horton, and it's great to be back with you. Thank you very much if you're a returning listener. If you're a new listener, welcome to the podcast. We have over 100 episodes in our archive that you can definitely go back and listen to now in case this one particularly piques your interest and you want to hear more. I hope you've all been well. I hope you've all been safe, relatively sheltered from the Omicron variant, at least having some time over Christmas to spend with loved ones and and just relax. I don't know about you, but for me, it was a pretty intense end to 2021. And I don't think my brain was really functioning by the end there in December. You can probably tell if you listen back to some of those episodes, I was sort of rambling away. But I feel great, happy after two weeks off and excited to bring you some really great episodes at the start of this year. Not least today's episode, which I'm going to tell you about now. So... We've seen over the past two, three years, you could argue going back further, but at least during the COVID pandemic, that there are some serious systemic challenges to our system for global governance. There is, I think it's fair to say that achieving global solidarity in response to the pandemic, a coordinated response that brings together many countries, has proven a a significant, significant task. And um, the institutions that we hope can act on these things, the United Nations, the WHO, obviously we've become aware of their limitations, not necessarily through their own fault, (laughs) should hasten to add, but just the limits that these institutions have in terms of achieving coordinated action. You can see that in COVID-19, but you can also see that in the climate crisis and in a whole range of conflicts and peace building situations. And over the last year, Chatham House has been asking why cooperation and solidarity on a global level has been so hard to develop. And we've been working with the author and journalist John Kampfner on a series of written pieces that really explore these questions. The latest One, which is uh, out this week and is linked in the show notes, has a think about the effect that US China strategic competition has on this global solidarity question. Obviously, we've seen the United States as a kind of established superpower and China as its kind of rising rival, which is very much the standard. Perhaps a little cliched, hackneyed presentation of this, but it's true that the two countries have definitely entered into a phase of kind of contestation, not just in economic terms, but also increasingly, possibly in security terms, and also through institutions like the United Nations. And in his latest piece, John Kampfner is looking at the reputation and the soft power of China in the United States and how they are seen by other countries around the world, and what this means for the prospects for global cooperation. So to discuss these questions, we brought together a really fantastic panel of guests, and it was such a great way to start my year on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. So John is with us to tell us more about his thesis. He can sum it up better than I, and he does so in the first few minutes of this podcast. And then to discuss the questions that he raises, we brought together Francis Fukuyama from Stanford University and Hongying Wang from the University of Waterloo in Canada. To reflect on some of these questions and generally give us a bit of context to this whole question of international order us china competition and the kind of battle of the brands that john has been outlining for us as you'll hear the conversation was so wide-ranging we get into all sorts we talk climate change covid 19 international order global governance. We talk about the stance of European powers like Germany, like the United Kingdom. We talk about how developing countries are increasingly playing the US and China off against one another in order to grow economically. Yeah, it's a fascinating deep dive into the topic. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so it's a pleasure to be joined today for the launch of Undercurrent Season 5 by a panel of distinguished guests to discuss how strategic competition between the United States and China is affecting global politics. And John, I'd like to begin, if you don't mind, could you maybe just tell us about the subject of your latest instalment of this series, which has been published this week?
1: Sure. Hi there, Ben, and hi there, everybody. The final report out now is really looking at the brands of the two countries. What is there still to show of American democracy in light of the internal threats through Trumpism and much more, both immediately, and we've just lived through the first anniversary of the storming of the Capitol, but more generally as well, really since the global financial crash, but also China as well, with the ongoing assaults on democratic norms in Hong Kong, the question of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and more generally, the Chinese image around the world. As Xi Jinping gets tougher, where does that leave the state of Chinese influence around the world? I suppose the better phrase to use for both countries is pulling power. To what degree do either of the two big powers have influence and hold sway, not on their allies, because allies are just that. They fall into a camp, and they usually, not invariably, but usually, do pretty much as they're told. But the vast swathe of countries around the world that really don't fall into either camp, or they may have done once upon a time in one, but they've shifted to another and they can shift back, And they're very much, and one might say sensibly, playing off one camp against another. So I looked at four country studies in brief in this report. Peru, the United Arab Emirates, Thailand, and Angola, that really, you might say, have nothing in common or little in common. But I picked out four countries that are constantly in the web of both big powers trying to win influence. And I conclude my report looking at what has happened to the particular image or the particular influence of the Biden administration. And only a couple of months ago, he held his, thanks to COVID, his digital-only summit for democracy. So you had world leaders up on the big screen, and he was talking grandly, grandiloquently, about the need for progress reports in 12 months' time. Uh, There was obviously some controversy around which countries did he choose and which countries did he not. But he was looking at signpost markers on a country's pushback against authoritarianism, against human rights abuse and media freedom abuse and against corruption. And in some ways, it's very easy to disparage that initiative. One might say that all Biden is doing is keeping the seat warm. For the return of Trump or the return of Trumpism, which will start perhaps in proxy form after the midterms at the end of this 2022 and may return in earnest two years subsequently. So to what degree does Biden have any influence over wavering states around the world? At the same time with China, you have increasing nationalism, you have increasing isolationism, partly caused by covid partly that really as an excuse. And you have the big party Congress later on this year as well. So those are just really starters from me. It is, I suppose, a stock check on which of the two countries is being able, more convincingly, to persuade waiverers. And just one quick uh, additional thought. Of course, I've chosen the United States and China, Because far and away, those are the two big powers. But the role of other players, namely the European Union, namely India, and most recently, very much in the front pages of all world newspapers, Russia and Putin, the perpetual irritant. And we're looking with bated breath at what he does in Ukraine. So those are my opening thoughts.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Thanks so much for that, John. And I'd like to just to turn now to, to Francis, if, if you don't mind. I'd like to just ask you about the way that, that John has been framing this issue and this idea of a kind of battle of the brands between the United States and, and China and how that is kind of shaping the interactions of other states in the global system. What do you make of this Moment that we're in at the moment, do you recognize this as this is the kind of fundamental dividing line in world politics at the moment? And what do you think the implications are for the international order? I suppose. Well, we have to
2: unpack some of the thoughts there. I mean, we've clearly returned to. A great power geopolitical competition in a way that wasn't really true during the 1990s and the first decade of the 21st uh, century with the rise of China and Russia. I think that part of this is simply a matter of political realism that the unipolar American world was a very unbalanced one. It was very, you know, in a way abnormal we've returned to a more normal kind of distribution of power among countries. And I think that historically, if you have a rapidly rising big power like China, it is going to be destabilizing no matter who the other players are because there has to be a big adjustment in expectations and so forth. So I think that that would be happening you know, virtually regardless of what kind of regime you have in the United States, who's running the regime and so forth. But you also have laid on top of this an ideological dimension. Since Xi Jinping rose to power in China, he has been trying to move his country in a far more authoritarian or I would say, you know, even in aspiration, totalitarian direction of very strict control over the lives of Chinese citizens using modern technology and also... Uh, shifted away from the kind of foreign policy we saw after 1978, you know, in which China was focused on domestic economic growth and now, you know, has been trying to extend its international influence. The United States is a complicated case right now. I would say that it ceased to be much of a model for successful consolidated democracy with its own internal polarization. On the other hand, You know, I'm not sure what the alternative to American leadership and kind of America setting a tone for democratic discourse is around the world. We are now in the 16th year of a decline of global democracy. And I think that, you know, one of the purposes of the democracy summit that John referred to was, you know, to simply point out to other democracies that they've got a common stake in their mutual survival and that they needed to cooperate because of their shared values. Now, I don't think it's safe to assume that the United States will remain polarized forever. I don't think it's safe to assume that Trump will inevitably make a comeback in 2024. He's actually not terribly popular, and I think a lot of it has to do with the peculiarities of the American electoral system that allowed him to get elected in the first place. But I think that other democracies have to ask themselves, if not the United States, you know, who is going to be the anchor for a global security system? Who is going to be the advocate in small countries when they see human rights abuse and authoritarian overreaching? Isn't the United States going to remain important in that struggle? So I guess those would be my initial thoughts.
3: As you were both saying, and I think John wrote in his paper, as well. So there's this complex interaction between power politics, realpolitik, geopolitics on the one hand and ideological differences to say the least, if not confrontation on the other hand. So I can't think of a better person to ask than Frank, is ideology back? Or as you you said at one point in your comments that this is a return of geopolitics. It doesn't really matter what kind of a regime China has as a second and upcoming power, there will be great upheaval. I see a little bit of tension, and I myself am really curious, how much is ideology back? Because that seems to be part of the rhetoric a lot. If it's Japan, it would have been a different debate. Uh, So much of it is focused on China's political regime. So I just thought you would be the best person to talk about that.
2: Uh, Sure. So. I don't think that ideology is back in the way that it existed during the Cold War when there was clearly a competing set of ideas around liberal democracy on the one hand and communism on the other. I think that, for example, if you look at Russia and China, they've got very different kinds of regimes. And I think that they find common cause for geopolitical reasons, but you know, there's a lot of tensions between those two countries that at the moment are kind of suppressed because of their need for cooperation. They're both opposed to American hegemony but for, you know, very different purposes. The other thing that's quite different, I think, has to do with the fact that China is not espousing a kind of universalistic ideology the way that Marxism-Leninism was a universalistic ideology. You know, the former Soviet Union thought basically everybody should be communist, you know, down the road. But China, I don't think, cares. I mean, they can work with lots of countries of differing regimes, uh, and they've done that in their Belt and Road Initiative. What they're interested in more is, I think, their national interest, which is a more geopolitical, realpolitik kind of interest. But the ideological competition still is a component of power, and I think they see the American model in decline, their own model rising. They may not want to impose it on other people, but I do think that that gives Chinese nationalism, you know, a strong sense of optimism and power.
1: To both of you, and maybe starting with with you, Hongying, the whole question of how is America looked upon elsewhere, and particularly the intense polarization and problems that America has had in the last several years. Is it your view, Hongying, that it is a sign of the weakness of liberal democracy, American style, and its promotion thereof over many decades? Is it the democratic, quote-unquote, element of that that is now being disparaged and seen as weak and able to be picked off? Or is it much more a simple power play and a quest of which power, which big rivalry will prevail?
3: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. It's a bit of both. Most of the rhetoric so far that I have seen is about the paralysis of a system such as the U.S. has, the lack of organization. I mean, why can't you copy our homework? We've already, you know, presented to you. You you build these hospitals, you isolate people, you wear masks. And What is it about people that would refuse wearing masks? It's just idiotic. So that's the sort of general impression coming out of this pandemic. But even back in 2007, 2008, there was questions about U.S. liberal, kind of market liberalism gone too far. So look at us. We have national teams when the stock market crashes, so nothing like that would happen. We're more disciplined. So both economic and political models of the US have lost a lot of credibility among the younger generation of Chinese. And so a lot of it is about that. It's is it democracy, is it American style capitalism? But also on the other hand it's it's about power as well. There's a lot of talk about transition from unipolar to a multipolar world, and that's the way it should be. And the decline of the U.S. at the beginning was questioned, right? So going back to the 90s, Joe Nye's talk about soft power and so on. And that's all gone. China has arrived. The U.S. has, you know, unquestionably lost its hegemonic position. So it's a combination, I'd say.
1: And that would, in your view, pertain to countries that are not in either fold, countries in Africa, in Latin America, in much of Asia, that are wooed by by both powers. Is it that same mix, do you think, of the relative demise of democracy as an ideology, or is it much more just simple? power considerations, which one is going to be on top, and therefore, which one do I need to keep on the right side of?
3: I think that varies so much across different continents and countries. So to the question of what other powers are trying to do, well, you have the Europeans who certainly have not lost faith in democracy and capitalism. They're critical, but they they certainly don't feel this is something fundamentally wrong. Same thing with Canada. But Asian countries, I think it's a bit more complicated. Uh, Countries as Singapore, I guess, Malaysia and, and such, they've already had their developmental state tradition and looking at how, you know, Southeast Asia's financial crisis in the late 90s happened, the Soros's in the world and so on. So they've learned a few times American style capitalism you know, market fundamentalism has very serious problems. And so they look at China's model with some admiration, I think, more so than European countries and Canadians. And in Africa, definitely it's a very different picture. You know, they're probably equally divided. I saw a recent poll, many still think the American market model or democratic model is better, but there are other African countries that are more inclined to believe China has a better way of doing things. So it's really difficult to generalize. But I think for countries such as those in Africa, to have a choice is wonderful. Whatever the ideology is or the model is, they now have a lot more leverage, bargaining for their own benefit. But a country like Singapore, this is not good it's not choices coming our way it's we're being we're the grass when the two elephants are rolling on the grass so it's very complicated and i think in europe as you all know much better than i it's very divided right germany thinks differently than britain or or france on how to relate to to china to russia and so on so it's all just varied i should say
0: John, could you maybe give us a bit more of the insight on Europe? We've had a change of government in recent months in Germany. We've got the French presidential elections coming up soon. We've got Britain trying to forge a post-Brexit path in relation to these two states. How do you see European powers kind of responding to this dynamic?
1: In my most recent piece, I was trying to differentiate between allies or supposed allies and countries that are either formally or technically non-aligned and are really biddable for both sides. And I really like Hong Ying's characterization of how a lot of this is beneficial to African countries because it produces greater leverage, whether that's on infrastructure provision, whether it was even, although it hasn't played out well, on vaccine exports or whatever. If you obviously have two players in any auction, You can get a better result from it in theory. But Europe is emphatically, or should emphatically, not be in that position. Europe, and particularly Western Europe and the NATO alliance, if America cannot count on that, then what does America have to count on? And particularly Germany, UK, France, and Western Europe, but now so much of the game is in Eastern Europe. On both wings, you have the Baltic countries, and to a degree Poland which is curious because obviously it has been uh, mounting an assault on democratic norms and yet at the same time is extremely wary of Belarus and and of Russia and then you have Hungary the outrider for sort of Trumpian dystopian authoritarian attacks on not just liberal democracy but on deliberately on European cohesion from within its heart. The one thing I do take quite strongly from this Biden administration and from the responses of countries such as Germany is this, that Biden may in so many ways be the antithesis of Trump, but not when it comes to the question of putting demands on European states and saying, okay, show us the colour of your money now, where do your allegiances lie? In Germany, where I am at the moment, the question of Nord Stream 2 and the gas pipeline is absolutely at the heart of it. And the new German three-party coalition, and particularly the second party in it, the Greens, who have the foreign ministry, are by far, and have been for years, by far the the most hawkish players, and are playing tough on Russia now. We'll see how far it goes. We will see whether this presently technical suspension of the pipeline becomes a permanent one. And if it doesn't, what compensation, quote unquote, will the Americans want for letting it go through? And events around Putin over the next weeks and months will be pivotal to that. And there is also a very, it's been happening over the last year or two, but a cooling in relations towards China. The German Employers Federation issued a report a couple of years ago that was really the first time. It um, used the term systemic rivalry and was a very carefully but strongly worded statement of China brings as many economic, not to mention political, concerns as it does opportunities. Whereas before, as we all know, Western Europe, including the UK, were rolling out the red carpet because all investment was seen as good investment. That has very much now been questioned. Whether it has actually been reversed is moot, but it's in some ways being, uh, which I know is a very old-fashioned school of thought, but being still a Eurocentric person as I am, uh, it's intriguing to see um, that a lot of these questions of allegiances and rivalries are coming back now in Europe. And America is asking, albeit in a very different context, the same questions of Europe As it did several decades ago. The question now is to the points that we were talking about a little bit earlier, is to what degree does America have the same pulling power on these countries? And as I say, there is I was interested, Frank, being much more skeptical than I was about the potential return of Trump or Trumpism. Here in Europe, there's almost a universal assumption that it's going to happen. And why throw in all your cards with Biden? because uh, something worse is going to happen, and strategic autonomy still ill-defined, but the idea that Europe's got to stand on its own two feet is very much um, in its infancy, but being developed, particularly by France and Germany.
2: Yeah, well, frankly, I think that's kind of a ridiculous position. If Europe had actually made any effort after 2016 to develop its own defense capability to develop a mechanism for making decisions that couldn 't be vetoed you know by the smallest of its members. Uh, if any of that had happened, I would take this seriously and actually, you know as an american i don 't think that would be a terrible thing if, if Europe had an independent defense capability, but what they 're doing is complaining about the u s and not doing anything you know to actually move in that direction. And so they, in a way, want to have it both ways. You know, they they don't want to accept American leadership, but they don't want to grapple with uh, or take that mantle on for themselves. I mean, I personally think that this idea that Europe is somehow going to be a free-floating entity between these two rivals, Russia and China, doesn't make any sense because I think, you know, there are concrete interests at stake, but in the end, the values issue uh, is going to matter to Europeans because that 's really what the you know the EU has uh, been about and what its unity is based on and i don 't think it 's a, a kind of neutral choice as to which of these you line up with now <laughs> that 's all true in the long run. I think Trump made that very difficult because his anti Chinese rhetoric was so extreme and so puerile in a way that you know it was very hard for anybody in Europe to line up you know with someone that was talking about the Chinese virus and, you know, and, and so forth. But again, I think concretely where Europe's interests lie is really not in between these two blocks. Uh, uh, I do think there's still a democratic poll that, you know, everybody needs to work on holding together.
1: No, I would completely agree with you just to uh, my, my point about strategic autonomy is that there is a sort of floundering around and that Trump made that more urgent. What I don't see in any way, and it would be foolhardy if there was any was any sense of moral equivalence. Europeans know, to use a British phrase, which side their bread is buttered. They know whether they like it or not that uh, the Western alliance, and in some ways, there is an attempt to strengthen it. At the same time, there is also a sense, uh, in the better sense of the term, but I take your point that it's completely inchoate that Europe needs to do more. I, it's you know it's interesting. I see developments around the Quad and developments around in Indo-Pacific strategies as being the first side of a much more flexible approach now
0: towards alliances. We've just been hearing there about these alliances, which, depending on your reading of them, are sort of based on shared values, democracy, human rights and such. But Hongying, do you get a sense that ultimately an end point for China would be the development of Similar alliances, is that ultimately what they want to be to be building with nations? Or is it a much more kind of transactional picture based on economic cooperation and less of a sense of a kind of model of governance that they're trying to export to the rest of the world?
3: Yeah, I I think it's a very difficult question to ask and answer across time. So I remember in the 90s, there was a lot of literature about was China a status quo power? I guess scholars said, oh, most agree it's a status quo power and there's a lot of evidence. And then after Xi Jinping came along, there was a lot about, well, is China transitioning from a rule taker to a rule maker? Oh, yeah, there seems to be evidence that as well. So I don't think the Chinese leadership or policymaking community has a blueprint necessarily, besides the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. So how does that happen is ever changing. And it depends so much on so many things, the, the society, the speed of China's economy, which obviously has come down a lot uh, since the early 2000s, and the power struggle. And who would have foreseen? I don't think even party members, party elites uh, could have foreseen where Xi Jinping is today, how much he has centralized power, and so on. So it's difficult to say what the end game is besides, you know, China needs to be respected around the world. And that's one thing I think every stripe of political actors in China, even the ordinary people would share that ambition. But I think Frank is right that China so far is not or has not been historically uh, an exporter necessarily of a universal ideology. I think it has been for a long time quite happy to be transactional and very pragmatic non-intervention, just give me your oil, then you're fine. And in Europe, I don't think China has any ambition of regime (laughs) change or anything like that. As long as you respect China, that's sort of the whole mantra of democracy at the international level. So that they're very critical of countries like the US that emphasize democracy in the domestic level, democratic individual freedom and so on. But as an international hierarchy, Why should one system trump over the others? And I think that has a lot of buyers within China and probably in many countries in the global south. What about diversity there? What kind of values do we all have to adhere to? We're just very different people and and so forth. So I think it's one word to describe China is pragmatism. It seems to be much less uh, committed uh, over the years to any sort of value except the national rejuvenation of China.
1: I would just slightly question you on that, Hongying. To to the extent, if I understood you correctly, you were suggesting that that politics doesn't play much of a part as long it is a transactional relationship, and as long as China is respected, then that's as far as it goes. I'm wondering whether one of the ways of defining that transaction is also whether, it, even if it is not explicitly stated. It is you don't vote against China in international forums. Uh, You don't cause China trouble or problems. And almost the expression keeping politics out of it as as a definition of that transaction is also saying all kinds of other issues, whether it's um, human rights questions or others are not for you, the country with which I'm transacting not for you to get yourself involved in. In other words, you keep out of things. That is a political statement, is it not?
3: It's just not a value statement. It's about you know, whatever happens to be the ideology that I now champion, yeah, you stay out of it. Although I see a little bit of sign that could change. And again, China's just ever changing. That's like more so than other countries. Everybody's ever changing, but China more so. so. You know china has always adhered to this non-intervention principle within the country it's your affairs all we do is sell you products buy your mm-hmm. energy and so on but because china is now i think for the first time so economically involved in so many parts of the world that uh, it is very you know small step uh, beginning to take a more flexible view toward intervention so, for example, in the Horn of Africa, now there is, a, I guess, a special envoy for, appointed by China to to uh, try to build peace. I mean, th- this would not been something China w- would do in the past, but now. It's sort of like the old saying that you, you're, you, you kind of follow where your economic uh, interests go, where Chinese companies, workers are so deeply involved. Chinese investment is so much and deeply sunk in an area. Can you still stay so uninvolved? So that could change uh, in the future. But it, again, it, my point of view is, is that it's not very value-based. Again, it's very interest-based.
0: Frank, I wonder if I can just come back to the to the US with you and, and obviously so far in this conversation, to an extent, whether deliberately or otherwise, we've kind of been emphasizing the kind of values, ideas that underpin how the US is trying to engage with the world. And we've we've just been hearing there about how China is maybe taking a more sort of pragmatic, transactional approach to geopolitics. Do you think that You know, we've seen Biden, as John mentioned, with the summit of democracy towards the end of last year, emphasising that kind of values message. Is a more transactional approach kind of an option for the US in competition with China? Is an alternative that they could go much further down a more structural economic power route? Does that make sense? Or is the democracy, human rights, values system the trump card that the United States has?
2: Well, first of all, those are not alternatives. I mean, it's not as if you either make promotion of democracy and human rights the number one overriding goal of your foreign policy, or you behave in this highly realpolitik, you know, national interest way. The United States has always mixed the two. And, you know, they've mixed the two in part because the the values part of the foreign policy is also a strength of the realpolitik part, right? It's it's what makes other democracies want to cooperate with you, but there's never been a case where, you know, if there's a really big concrete interest, you know, for example getting Ethiopia to cooperate with you in the war against terror you're not going to let criticisms of Ethiopian human rights policy get in the way of that. That, of course, has led to these perpetual charges of hypocrisy, but I just think this is based on a false expectation that somehow if you say that human rights is important, then it's going to override every single other national interest that you have. Uh, So I think, you know, Biden is uh, not going to go beyond uh, the kind of rhetorical posturing that he has. Uh, Certainly, he's not going to condition, you know, relations with China on the Uyghurs or other human rights criteria. I think it is going to be you know, very much based on a kind of hard-headed realpolitik uh, assessment of you know of the state of the competition.
1: I was wondering if I could return the conversation back to the sort of the credibility and the and the leverage of both the two powers and the two systems. And Frank, in a recent New York Times essay, a series of essays marking the first anniversary of the attack on the on the capital, mm-hmm. I just pulled out one a couple of words uh, that you wrote, but you talked about the state of U.S. democracy having been, and you used the word, shredded by the events. I'm wondering if you could just explain that further within the context of, if that is the case, then where does that leave American foreign policy in, as you describe it, this mix of national interest and values?
2: Well, I've been arguing this uh, for a while now. The single greatest weakness of the United States geopolitically is its internal polarization. And the fact that you know the two sides of that polarization can't really agree on anything uh, other than going after the other. It's not a symmetrical polarization. I mean, it's really being driven by the Trump MAGA proponents uh, much more than people on the left. But, you know, they both participate in this. And that has direct geopolitical consequences. If you read a lot of the Russian commentary about Ukraine, they are explicitly saying, compared to back in 2008 when they tried to expand NATO the last time, the correlation of forces has massively changed. The United States is incredibly weakened by its internal divisions. Uh, We have grown stronger. This is the opportunity for us to act. I think China has not quite as explicit, but they've certainly noted the fact that they're a rising power and the United States seems to be a declining power. And that obviously opens up you know, opportunities for action. It's just that the Chinese up to this point have been much more uh, risk averse than Putin has been, uh, and therefore have not acted on that. So yes, I think that this is a problem. And until we solve this internal division I think that other countries are going to try to take advantage of it, and uh, you know, use it to get what they want uh, before you know before it's too late, in a certain sense.
1: And Hong Ying, I suppose, China is always known for its long termism. So, to what degree does the fact that it's Biden now, and how long does Biden's version of values will it last? And the question of will Trump or Trumpism return? And then if Trump or Trumpism do return to what degree does any of this the polarization that Frank described, but also the question of who's in charge to what to what degree does any of this play out in terms of China's view of where it wants to see itself and its own influence
3: well I think ironically or maybe not so ironically when you know most of the world lamented Trump and his policy, there were certain commentators in China that uh, actually said, this is great. Uh, Let the U.S. uh, engage its own self-destruction. And this gives us even more opportunities to grow and to show we're so reasonable. We're the new leader in global governance. So basically, the worse the U.S. looks, the worse the U.S. is internally divided. It's not necessarily bad news for analysts in China across the board. I've certainly seen rhetoric to the opposite. So if Trump comes back, is it really that bad? I'm not sure. So from China's point of view, it's almost a political opportunity, not only because that weakens the US, but also gives China all kinds of justifications to do what it wanted to do anyway. So if you remember when Trump came in in 2016, the Chinese economy was already slowing down and the trade war and and such only gave the leaders some additional justification. Well, this is what happens, the trade war, and, you know, we're under tremendous pressure, and here we are heroically fighting all these external enemies and so on. So I am not sure China is as worried as the rest of the world about a return of Trumpism or Trump himself. But talking about long-termism, that's both true and not complete. Uh, I mean, for example, Xi Jinping or the Winter Olympics or, or the Party Congress this year, as John, you, you mentioned, these are very short-term calculations. So what are they doing to prevent these short-term disasters from happening? Extreme measures, you know, 14 million people in Tianjin to be tested in two days. This sort of thing repeats itself all the time, it doesn't make any sense in the long term. But the political insecurity of the regime is such that, you know, very often, it does things that are very short sighted. It's amazing what could happen.
0: John, can I come back to you now? And I, I just want the preceding articles in in the series that you've written for Chatham House looked at the COVID crisis and the climate crisis in a bit more depth. And I just wondered, we're sort of talking about this kind of long-termism versus short-termism. To some extent, for me, COVID and the climate crisis feel like kind of outliers in this as well, because they're not these kind of short periods of time that can be got over <laughs> quickly. So at what point do you think there is going to be lasting reputational change based on how these countries respond to the two crises. And could you maybe just tell us a bit more about what you think the effect these crises has been? Well, one of the crises, climate, is not going to go away
1: ever. It's a matter of coping with it. It will manifest itself in different ways. The trajectory, it's a question of slowing down the crisis itself, slowing down the negative repercussions where possible and building resilience. There is zero prospect of the crisis ever disappearing in, well, certainly in in several lifetimes. So it is an ongoing issue which speaks to soft power, pulling power, leverage. The United States was not able to bring the world on board for its 100 billion contribution to the global south, to developing nations in their quest to make themselves more resilient and more green. And that is both a problem in and of itself. It's also a symptom of a wider question that at the same time, China has itself a plethora of problems to face on Climate. We haven't had the chance in this discussion to look at the question of energy shortages, of coal, of the effects of climate already being manifested in many occasions in China itself and other nations that could be stepping up and the, the new, or the not so new, emerging powers India, Saudi Arabia, Australia having proven itself incredibly obdurate, and Australia in so many ways. Is becoming the United States one of its closest allies. And the difficulty that the Biden administration is having with the Australians speaks volumes, I think, for a wider set of questions for the United States. But as I say, the problems are absolutely not the United States alone, it's for China and, and other countries as well. And as regards COVID, well, of course, we hope that this latest variant may be, who knows, maybe the last, and that we're moving from a pandemic to an endemic. Situation in which we learn to live with it and, and that measures are taken to cope with it. But again, at the same time, the failure of the wider world and not necessarily just America, but all the powers to distribute vaccines, to see the pandemic as an opportunity for a wider global governance rather than a, a me first nationalism into which all countries descended and putting up borders and whatever else, is in a different way a problem. But I I do think that the wider question pertains much more to climate. And in Glasgow at COP26, the Americans and the Chinese did cobble together at the last minute a statement of sorts, but it fell far short of what in an ideal world they could have done, both in terms of the aggregate of those two countries, but also what message that would have sent to other countries as well.
2: If I could just comment on that, I actually think that all these COP meetings are kind of irrelevant to really solving the climate crisis. Uh, you know, the real obstacles are, I think, these extremely strong economic incentives that every single country has in pushing forward the transition. And it's not going to be affected by promises that are made at this kind of international summit. And you can see very clearly those, I mean, the case of China, they were trying to cut back on use of coal, which then led to electricity shortages, a lot of manufacturing businesses had to shut down. And so they reversed the policy because, you know, they didn't want to take that kind of slowdown in economic growth. And so. That's the thing I think we need to pay attention to, is the national level obstacles to actually moving ahead on climate and not a promise that is likely not to be honoured at an international conference. That's what I would call
0: climate uh, realism. Yeah, very interesting. I just have the last question I wanted to put to Hongying and, and Frank before we go, which is, I think... One of the really interesting points out of John's series is that to some extent, this US-China rivalry, strategic rivalry that we've been talking about, does have an impact on the ability of the world to solve these major crises. I just wanted to sort of close what you think about that. Do you think that while we have these two great powers in in competition with each other, that they're ultimately trying to get solidarity on a kind of post-pandemic recovery on meaningful action on climate change is that a genuine obstacle to those goals or are we actually going to get some kind of (laughs) creative tension coming out of this out of this relationship which is another point that I think John makes really well in his articles um Hongying maybe do you have any views on this to start us off
3: yeah I think I agree with Frank that the real obstacle is not a lack of an agreement. Anymore, I think the world has come to this agreement because of everybody's experience with climate change. And in that context, so what do nations do? Competition is not necessarily a bad thing. So from a Chinese point of view, all these past years and, and if not decades of trying to move toward renewable energy, developing green economy, are not just costs, uh, temporarily maybe coal suddenly has to come back to rescue uh, energy shortage. But in the long run, you know, China has done a lot in creating green technology, turning to electric cars, solar energy, wind energy, and so on. It's really a win-win situation for China. It's both a PR victory. It also makes China's economy in the long run very competitive, right? And if the U.S. can, I don't know, not necessarily industrial policy, but some kind of encouragement or help from the government or or better ways of, you know, market mechanisms encouraging clean energy, this kind of competition can be very positive. I think in the end, the world would benefit if it's just not Tesla alone or not the Chinese solar panels alone and, and so forth. So competition isn't necessarily bad, but I think on the pandemic or things of that nature. Transparency, trust are so important. That really is slightly a different game than, than climate change and green technology. That's where I think cooperation would be much more uh, important. So we remember SARS, HIV, AIDS, Ebola, when the countries did cooperate, things were brought under control much faster than this time. Everything's politicized. Um, Everything is uh, somebody's PR victory. You know, the mask diplomacy, PPE diplomacy, vaccine diplomacy. So that's really not good for the long run. But I would say climate uh, is slightly different than this.
2: Yeah, I uh, largely agree with COVID and vaccines. The economic stakes were really quite different. And there should have and could have been much more cooperation On climate, the question about whether it's in your economic self-interest to speed up the transition is a complicated one. Certainly there are big transitional costs involved that a lot of countries are not willing to pay. I'm not quite sure that China's record on this has actually been all that good, although they promised to stop funding BRI coal projects, it's still the case that about 90% of the energy projects in you know, BRI are fossil fuel based. And so I'm not quite sure, is it possible that if the United States offers an alternative energy project in competition with China, that this will change Chinese calculations? Maybe, <laughs> but I just think the economic incentives here are Pretty powerful, and I'm not quite sure that you can fence this off as a, you know, area where you could get, uh, you know, useful competition.
3: I, I wonder, given the U.S. tradition uh, of maybe not so friendly toward the role of the state in this sort of thing, is there any room for change? Do you see any?
2: Well, democratic administrations have engaged in industrial policy, you know, to speed up the transition. This famous cylindra so-called scandal uh, under the obama administration was because the energy department was actually subsidizing innovative companies that would you know produce alternative energy and that disappeared under trump but it's now back i mean the build back better bill has a very large portion of its funding you know for helping the transition But unfortunately, it's caught up in that same polarization that we've been talking about. And so it's not clear how much of that is actually going to be passed by Congress. So again, this is, as I said, another source of, you know, overall geostrategic weakness, because if you can't actually get things done in your own country, it's going to be
0: hard to, you know, to be credible internationally. I just wondered, John, if you could just give us your thoughts on I guess what you've heard maybe on that question, but generally on the conversation and and how you think it's interacted with the pieces you've been writing for us.
1: Well, first of all, to thank you both, Frank and Hong Ying, for a really interesting, fascinating discussion. I I certainly have learned a lot, and I was delighted to be challenged on the points raised in the three projects. I suppose we're back to the question of the fact that rivalry exists and the fact that we have bipolar positions which didn't pertain in the 90s which were very much an aberration in modern history is probably inevitable who knows it may also be good and i like the idea that actually some third countries benefit from that because you know, if you're being optimistic you can go back to talking about rising tides and lifting and lifting boats if only life was as simple as that i suppose in a more pragmatic sense if this big power rivalry is here to stay, and what does to stay mean nowadays, but certainly for a couple of decades, how, and given that crises, both climate and who knows what else, are a factor of modern global governance, how do we develop structures that are better than the existing ones, that enable either open or tacit cooperation between these two hard-bitten strategic rivals that work better than have certainly been the case, as you both pointed out, in the pandemic, because we sure as anything need that to happen for climate and for tackling other
0: crises and problems in the future. Absolutely. Thank you very much, all three of you, for a fascinating conversation. John Kampner, Hongying Wang, Frank Fukuyama. Have a great day. Thanks again for joining us on Undercurrents. That's it for this first episode of Undercurrents in 2022. Thank you very much for listening to the end if you're still with us. If you liked what you'd heard, please leave a review and subscribe on whichever app you're using to listen to this. And leave us a rating. It really, really helps other people discover the podcast. And ultimately, that is what we want. We want as many people to listen to this as possible. Tell your friends, tell your mum and dad, tell your granny. Just get people listening and tell us what you would like to hear on the podcast as well. That's something that I'd really love to do more of this year is, is hear from listeners about the topics that they want to cover. So the best way to do that is to email me at bhorton, H-O-R-T-O-N at chathamhouse.org. Just get in touch. Give me some feedback. I mean, if it's harsh, I'll be a bit sad, but if it's constructive, I'll take it on board. And if you've got topics that you want to cover, please do pitch them there. If you want to keep up with the rest of Chatham House's work, the best way to do that is to visit our website, www.chathamhouse.org, or to follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. I'll be back next week with another episode on the state of US democracy, one year on from Joe Biden's inauguration, and some other very interesting topics. Until then, have a great week and thanks for joining us.